Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 111 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're in the UK, happy lockdown restriction day. Firstly as ever, thank you to the Patreon supporters, new and old, without whom I wouldn't be able to make this podcast. And if you'd like to support us from as little as £3 a month, you can do so in the Instagram bio or go into www.patreon forward slash Ministry of Arts. And if you're not able to, that's fine. The content is free here for everyone anyway. This episode was meant to be an artist who is better known for their work in television. But I've had a little shift around because this week's guest talks about an exhibition they're involved with that ends at the end of the month. So I thought it'd be beneficial just to swap them around. Now this week's episode is internationally respected art historian and curator Michael Pepiat. Along with thousands of other people, one of my favourite artists is Francis Bacon. And I've read several books on his life and work, most of which were written by Michael. Because as well as being Francis Bacon's close friend for many years, he was also his biographer. And I'll be honest, when it comes to speaking to Michael, I was a little bit intimidated. I mean, the man's been in the art world longer than I've been in the actual world. He started at the Observer newspaper in 1964 as junior art critic. And today he's an internationally respected expert in 20th century art. He's put major exhibitions on all around the world. And his exhibition, Francis Bacon, Man and Beast, was meant to be at the Royal Academy this January, but has been postponed because of lockdown restrictions and has now been moved to January 2022. He has got a current exhibition at Ben Brown Fine Art in London that has been running for quite some time, but was interrupted by lockdown. And that was an exhibition called What is Ahead? 
as in What Is A Head, which features the work of Frank Auerbach and Tony Bevan. And Tony Bevan holds a special little place in my heart because he was another artist that wrote to me while I was in prison. And that show runs until the 30th of April before it's taken down and moves over to the Ben Brown Gallery in Hong Kong. Michael lives in southwest France and as much as I would have loved to have popped over and uh, recorded this episode in person, we had to do it over Zoom unfortunately. But there you go, better luck next time. So please, come and join me, art historian and curator Michael Pepiat. Limiting or? Uh, I've just had to adjust my practice a little bit, you know. You can, can you work at home? Is that all right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's all right by me. I'm, I've been doing drawings the last um, year, so, oh, right, so yeah, yeah, that's just fine. Yeah, I've been do doing that. That's writing, isn't it? You can do it yeah. anywhere. Um, there's a show on a, the Ben Brown Fine Arts with Frank Albach and Tony Bevan. What is ahead? Yes. Uh, I've, I've seen the, the show, I've only seen it online. Um, yeah. but there's a, a video tour around the show. Um, but, oh, what a great couple of artists to, um, to curate yeah. their show. I'll be lucky, yes, indeed. Um, so this came about really, uh, like many things that, uh, that work, came about by chance in the sense I, uh, I did um, an exhibition a long time ago, about 20 years ago, in Paris at the Musée Maillot, and it was called um, From Bacon to Bevan. And uh, Auerbach was, of course, in it as being a sort of uh, uh, School of London artist. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I noticed that uh, there was a distinct rapport between uh, his work and Tony Bevan's work. Yeah. And um, I discussed with Ben Brown the idea of, of redoing that show 20 years later, but that was very, very complicated. And uh, he uh, was able to borrow um, a fair number of works, I think uh, uh, 10 works by, um, by Auerbach and to, um, he has his sort of uh, pick of Tony Bevan's work because he represents it. Yeah, brilliant. He has a lot and uh, uh, Tony um, has, uh, has others in his studio. So uh, we were able to bring the two artists together we made the choice. Um, Tony helped a lot on the hang because I'm here in southwest France and yeah. uh, can't get back. And uh, so we discussed the whole concept, Tony and I. Uh, Frank, as you probably know, has just turned 90 and yep. uh, he's painting away like mad <laughs> and you know, making uh, every second count. So yeah. uh, he doesn't really uh, get involved in um, you know, in uh, well, pretty much anything outside the studio, yeah. You know, he's got that well-worn path yeah. to his studio, and uh, <laughs> once he's in there, you know, he's with his painting, and um, he does what he's been doing for the last uh, God knows, uh, certainly seventy years. Yeah. Um, and um, anyway, but he gave his blessing to the show, and uh, that was uh, that was nice to know. And uh, it's been a very sort of interesting experience because um, I feel that it's one of those shows 
I mean, I would say this, I suppose, <laughs> you know, they don't always work, these sort of dual or triple shows, you know. You come up with, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Leonardo and Leonora Carrington or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And perhaps <laughs> sometimes they work and sometimes you suddenly think, hmm, I don't think this is going anywhere. But this... They um, sit beautifully it, next to each other, don't they? Yes, they do. Well, they talk, there's a dialogue. Definitely. I feel. And um, what I think is nice about this, I mean, there are all sorts of finer points, I suppose one can find between the art of one and the art of other, but what of the other, but what is, um, you know, what is there immediately is, is a sort of dialogue where you're very conscious of what paint can do with a different artist. Definitely. Uh, and since the subject is similar in all these pictures, it's like, oh, so uh, that's how he approaches it. Whereas Bevan is more linear, more mm. conceptual, let's say. It's less sort of coming from within the, uh, the fiber of the paint. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a different approach, but not so different as there aren't lots of points of comparison and lots of differences. And I think it, uh, that dialogue tells you a lot about uh, the simple act of painting, not so simple act of painting, but the, the actual act of painting and how and, different it can be. And today, um, I mean, the head and shoulders is probably more prevalent than it's ever been in society, especially yeah. this last year, like even you and I at the moment talking over yeah. Zoom, we can only see each other's head and shoulders. FaceTime has been um, so um, needed for, for so many people. And Well, perhaps we, you know, little by little will be nothing but head and shoulders. <laughs> uh, if it goes on, perhaps the whole lower body, I hope not, but the whole lo lower body might atrophy, you know, we'll yeah. become like sort of lizards or something, with a prominent head and <laughs> uh, um, disappearing... Uh, tale of a body, um, but um, obviously the uh, the subject is interesting too because uh, as I sort of entitled that short uh, text that I wrote for the um, for the exhibition, what is ahead? What is it? It's everything really. Yeah. It's the whole human psyche, the whole uh, whole of human existence. I mean, it's a curious concept, a head rather than a face. Yeah, there's a big difference, you know. I mean, um, a head is is a sort of like a this precious container. A face is more the facade. Yeah, yeah, just the identity, isn't it? Yes, it's the sort of identity. Well, it's the it's the sort of um, you know, it's the first layer of the identity because, as we all know, you know, the face can be a uh, um, a sort of uh, disguise, can be a kind of um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, you know, camouflage. Yeah, yeah. And the head is all the workings. It's all the the almost the uh, the electronics, the machine the control center. Yeah. Yes, exactly that. It's a control center um, of everything, of of everything we know, everything we see, everything we think. Obviously. Yeah. Whereas the face is not necessarily that. It's uh, it's what it's what shows. Um, and the head is a more interesting concept, and I think uh, in in these two cases, the, uh, the 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 painters come at it from a very different point. I've always been fascinated by the um, 
the fact that Arbach arrived in England as a uh, as a refugee from mm. uh, Nazi Germany as a, a very small boy, and he seems to have, uh, by his own account, he seems to have fitted in quite quickly. You know, he learned how to play cricket sort of early on, uh, and wanted, no doubt, as one does, uh, particularly when one's little to fit in as soon as possible and not sort of stick out and be uh, more vulnerable than, uh, than necessary. Uh, and I've always wondered how he coped with that loss because he never saw his parents again yeah. or a lot, probably many of the people that uh, of his friends, of his friends' families uh, uh, disappeared. And it, that must have left a deep, uh, a deep trauma behind. And, How old was he, uh, Michael, when he came over? Do you I know? About eight. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's old enough to to keep hold of a vision and a memory of the parents, isn't it? Yes. A few oh, years younger, and he may well have yeah, forgotten. Earlier, I mean, I didn't uh, didn't check my facts. Uh, I should have done, but I suspect uh, if he came over in well, I won't try and work it out. But he was a um, yes, he was a boy around that age, yeah. and. All his painting, in a way, has been sort of like an excavation. I mean, he excavates, it seems to me, he excavates images through these layers, these mounds of very thick pigment. Yeah. And um, uh, what fascinates me about his, uh, his faces, his heads, his figures, is that they seem to rise through the... Uh, the accretions mm. of paint, as though they're, you know, they've been produced by the paint, like almost a, uh, well, almost a, a, a body resurfacing through the earth. Whereas Bevan is more conceptual, more linear. He has a, um, uh, I know there are plenty of accidents because we've talked a lot, yeah. uh, and I, a lot of accidents as he's actually um, creating his paintings, but, they seem to be more, um, less left to chance. Definitely. Sort of imposed on the canvas with a, with a plan, with a, with a concept already formed. It's only his rapid process of, of putting the marks on the canvas that have made these uh, sort of happy accidents happen in the first place. And with the charcoal break, yeah. and the, the spray of charcoal, and he incorporates those, those accidents as part of the genesis, as it were, of the picture, which uh, does give it an extra sort of dimension. Yeah, and he's got a very exciting uh, manner in which he paints, hasn't he? And they're sort of, uh, I mean, he approaches the head, I think, more as a almost an architectural space. You get to walk around, yeah. to sort of, you know, to travel within these heads and see <clears throat> what extraordinary um, constructions they are. A lot of the time, there's quite little form Within within the head that he paints, but he's still, he's still very tactile very feel. Fragile too, although they they tend to be very big and dominant uh, against the picture plane. Uh, I'm always fascinated by the neck. The neck seems to be the most vulnerable part. You know, yeah. it's full of of sort of accident. I mean, almost like a piece of wood with knots in it and veins yeah. standing out. Because it's quite linear. It, it makes it, I'm, I'm doing the action here that no one's going to see yeah. anyway, but because his strokes are quite linear, it almost looks like there's a strain on the neck, doesn't it? Pulling the, the yeah. sinews and muscles being exactly. tense. Yes, as though all the uh, the tendons or whatever they Definitely, are are standing yeah. up, like somebody under uh, considerable strain. 
And uh, perhaps that's, I mean, I think they are uh, pictures of anxiety. He uses his own, his own features, as it were. That way yeah. he can do whatever he likes because he doesn't have to. He's not painting a portrait. None of these yeah. really come across as portraits, but much more as, uh, as heads. Unfortunately, the exhibition has pretty much been closed because of lockdown. I know, I know. And it's, uh, when does it end? I think it ends in April, and then uh, it's going to uh, the Ben Brown Gallery in Hong Kong. Excellent. So uh, it's a little bit further to go. <laughs> well, hopefully the guys in Hong Kong will um, have a better timing than we have in the UK to be able to see it. Just as we're talking there, I just had a little check, and it's the 30th of April that it closes in the UK. Yes. But as I say, it's very unlikely anyone will be able to physically go to see it. But um, on Ben Brown Fine Arts website... I don't, uh, Post, I, you know, I'm always uh, behind. There's possibly a bit of movement from, I think it's the 12th of April over here. Um, but yeah, things aren't, a date but things aren't properly opening until mid-May. Or they're, they're much more relaxed right. in mid-May. Uh, obviously, when you're in in the room and you've got the, uh, you know, you can see the brushwork, you can see the, uh, the, the, you know, the difference in, um, uh, almost tactility, Definitely. as it were, from one painting to another. Uh, it's a different language. It's a bit like, yes, I, I, I've thought about it at certain moments as two languages, that, you know, that are similar, say, Spanish and Portuguese or Spanish and Italian. Yeah. Um, where, uh, you know, one, you pick up sounds in the various languages and you see, yes, there are these similarities and these differences, you know. Yeah. That, so it makes your eye more, um, more sort of acute, more nimble, and you start seeing things as you look from one artist to another. It sort yeah. of sharpens your visual sense. Well, it's, it's definitely like as you were just saying there, they're speaking the same language, but with a slightly different accent, aren't they, you know? That's, that's a very good way of putting it. Brilliant. Yes, it's sort of different dialects. Exactly. You mentioned, obviously, Francis Bacon, you know, is, is good friends visually with, with both of these artists. You're curating a, an exhibition, Man and Beast, which should have opened a couple of months ago at the RA, but has now yes, been postponed until this time, or until January next year. Um, I know. Now it seems sort of almost normal. I mean, what, what strange... <laughs> you was really <laughs> there. Oh, no, we're opening in a year. Please <laughs> <laughs> come back then. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, there's no one better place on the planet, probably, than yourself to, to talk about Francis Bacon, which is very so. exciting uh, for me. I might quote you on that, you know. <laughs> you, can, you can have it. Coming very useful. <laughs> um, not that anyone's going to pay any attention to what I've got to say anyway, Mike. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Man and Beast. I, I know a, a little bit about the show. Well, if I can, even before I ask you a question, yeah. there was a beautiful quote that I read about it, and it says that um, that the exhibition explores Francis Bacon's visceral paintings where the line between human and animal is constantly blurred, yes. reminding us that our primal instincts lie just below the surface. I, I don't know if that was your quote or not, but either way, that um, is... Well, a that sums up the show fairly, fairly well. Bacon was always conscious of the animal in man, 
And yeah. of course, we are animals. I mean, there's just no, uh, there's no, we're not a sort of complete separate, you know, being. We're part of the animal king kingdom, and probably, you know, uh, uh, more terrifying than any of the uh, of the animals. Some yeah. of them, you know, look quite in Bacon's painting. Some of the animals, and he painted. I mean, having had this concept and having. Um, agreed with the RA that we could uh, we could do an exhibition on that theme, I realized that animals are really uh, unexpectedly present, mm. uh, just actual animal paintings of animals, images yeah. of animals. Um, so it's quite clear that he had, he was fascinated, and of course I knew he was fascinated by, uh, by animals, and I think really uh, his fascination stemmed from the fact that Looking at animals, you know, they're less inhibited. They don't. Uh, they don't cover up. They 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 are what they are. Mm. Whereas human beings spend half their time sort of uh, trying to look. Yeah, building <laughs> uh, a facade. They think it might sort of help them. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, seduce somebody or whatever. Um, whereas animals just go for it and I think he he found them more reliable than human beings because they you know they are what they are yeah there was no pretense disguise it yeah and so uh he was fascinated by animal behavior because uh as I, I must say I am because you see you know I've watched baboon fooling around playing having ceremonies I mean it's absolutely fascinating because you can just sort of put them in suits yeah and uh, you're very close to a sort of, you know, a business meeting or something. <laughs> yeah, I've probably seen people behaving a lot worse in my time. Yes, I'm sure. Um, uh, so uh, it was it was a way, I think, for him of uh, evaluating um, people. Uh, and he referred back to a lot of photos of animals at different times because obviously they're almost like a mirror of, of human behaviour, but yeah. more more direct and so at the same time he looked for the animal in man as being the basic instinct what makes us tick mm. and that's what interested him most was to know what made people tick you know what their their real um drives impulses were uh, and his painting is uh, mainly about that Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How many paintings will be on show? Well, we're still uh, in the process of um, 
confirming, uh, you know, that the loans will still be available. I would think um, it could be, uh, it's not a large show. And of course, you know, with all the, uh, everything that's happened and uh, uh, from a budgetary point of view, it's going to be, um, it's going to be, I would say 45 paintings, something well, like that. That's, that's more than I was expecting. Yes, I mean it'll be it'll be a handsome show, and it will uh, it will be very much on that theme, yeah. you know, the the as it were the in, almost interchangeability in Bacon's world between uh, animal and man, between beast and man, and the uh, the fact that Bacon goes uh, you know right to the jugular, as it were, the animal jugular yeah. of man, and shows man even popes as um, animals. Well, you're saying that um, the, uh, the, the primal instinct is just below the surface. I mean, that's definitely what, what Bacon was trying to do. He was trying to pull away the surface of, of all of these right. subjects. Yes, to, to, to show the truth. Yeah. I mean, after all, um, uh, he was sort of, uh, certainly during the, uh, you know, the, the, the from, the earlier part of his career as a sort of morbid fantasist. Yeah. But having lived through the war, uh, having lived, well, in a sense, through two world wars, uh, what could be more horrific than actually what actually went on in the war? You know, yeah. of his paintings are sort of quite um, dainty in comparison yeah, I to the horrors of war. <laughs> um, so I, I just remember, I remember people sort of, you know, uh, um, while he was uh, still, you know, he wasn't an old man, but I, I once was meeting him in a museum and there was a, uh, a lady coming past. I think she must have been Catholic because she had a, a, a sort of golden uh, cross round her neck. And when she saw a bacon in, their, in, the, in this collection, she put her, her hand <laughs> uh, over, uh, her over her eyes. <laughs> so when, uh, when Francis turned up, I said, uh, I told him, and he said, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could imagine that being right up his street. I, I got into art very late in life. I didn't yes. get into art till I was like 28 years well, of age. I had yes. no interest in it before that. No, and then I just stumbled into the art world. Very and, interesting story. And fell in love with it. Um, yes. And Francis Bacon was, I think it was because of his attitude. Um, I think he was probably the third or fourth artist I'd ever looked at. Oh, right. And when I saw his his attitude and, you know, his, the way he sort of carried himself. Yes. And I just sort of fell in love with him there yes. and, and and I was getting books sent in and, you know, obviously they were, you know, many of them were, had your uh, your name on everything oh. that I read pretty much. When I was, do, do you know my background? Not really, just a bit. Right, I was in, I was in prison when I discovered art. Yes. And um, doing a prison sentence and when I was in there, I discovered the golden mean as well. And um, I got obsessed with the golden mean for a little while, just when I was becoming obsessed with Bacon's work. Right. And I started laying the golden mean over Bacon's work, knowing how spontaneous he was. Yeah. Um, and that he couldn't have laid this structure over the top of it. But when I laid the golden mean over the top of his artworks, so many of the points in his work were pinging up on that rigid mathematical structure, which, which I thought was quite amazing. 
The golden mean is one third and two thirds? Yeah, yeah, all round about that. Yes. I, was, I was laying that rigid structure over the top of his oh, artwork, yeah. bearing in mind that some of the paintings I was looking at only through like books and catalogues yeah. were probably yeah. crops a little bit, you know. Yeah, but, but either way, from, from what I had in front of me, I put the golden mean over the top and oh, so yeah. many elements, it might be a light switch would oh, come up in that area or um, like where he was wearing a watch. For instance, you know that the watch would be the the crossing point of the golden mean. It was really uh, quite extraordinary. Yes, yes. Well, I think he, uh, you know, he was um, he he had all sorts of reserves. I mean, in the sense of reserves of knowledge and uh, pockets of cunning and all sorts of yeah, things. Yeah. I mean, he was a very complex character. He liked to present himself as a kind of almost a wild man, you know, who'd sort yeah. of grown up on some, uh, you know, um, uh, lost farm in, uh, in, in the wilds of Ireland. Yeah. He was also very sophisticated. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit, a bit of both, but, and I think, although he thought, you know, he, he, his own account was that uh, he had just taken whatever he found as a, as a young man and it all came together through, but I, I think he, I think he studied very hard. Yeah. And I, funnily enough, at the time, I, because I was writing to a lot of artists and people within the arts. Oh, yes. Uh, I, just at that point, I was co corresponding with Brian Sewell. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, as I said, I'd done a dissertation at uni, but I discovered this several years earlier when I was in prison. So I sent right. um, this photocopy of, of like these findings out to Brian just to see what he thought of it. And yeah. uh, I remember the, the, the letter he sent back, the very first line was, um, this is brilliant yet unfounded. And he was saying that Francis Bacon would never have um, used that, that method. Not that I was trying to say that he was by any means. Well, he used, he certainly used the T-square and things like that. He also used, um, uh, <laughs> to do some of those circles, he, uh, he used a dustbin. I've, I've seen that, brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. And, uh, you know, he'd take a frying pan to uh, to mix his paints. I mean, when he was Excellent. up and going, he just take, took whatever was to hand. And I, I'm sure he would have been, um, I mean, he said, you know, with time I've become uh, technically more wily. Yeah. Um, that he, he experimented because he was very interested in te technique. Mm. You know, he said, you know, what, what you really want is to get to a stage where technique and subject really interlocked. Yeah. And um, I think he went on experimenting with technique the whole time because um, it was, um, you know, it gave him new possibilities. So um, I think that a lot of things are, are quite possible like that, you know, yeah. he, did, uh, he did check with, or perhaps he had an instinctive golden mean. I mean, mm. it is probably- well, I'm, I'm sure that if he was aware of it, and, yeah. you know, once you're aware of those rules, they come in um, subconsciously anyway, when you're yeah. setting out the composition of a painting anyway, don't yeah. they, you know? Yeah. I understand also uh, another little story was that um, when you was going over to France, Francis also gave you a letter of introduction to Giacometti. Yes, he did. He did. Uh, I wish I still had it, but uh, it was a long time ago. It must have been something like 65, 66. Wow. And I'd, uh, I was going for my first real job. I got a job 
my father had been up, up after me for not sort of, you know, basically, <laughs> basically sort of uh, just drifting around trying to yeah. have a good time. I wasn't very keen on on sort of uh, getting, you know, being employed. But yeah. uh, he sent me a, um, a, an ad really asking for a, a junior editor on a magazine in, in Paris. And I didn't really want to go to Paris. I was, I was very, very happy in, in London. I had friends there and... Uh, you know, things were looking up. I managed to get a, a nice girlfriend and so on. So I was, I was, I was really quite, um, quite pleased. But uh, you know, this was a job, and I, uh, I thought, well, I better, I, I, I better take it, not knowing I'd stay for nearly thirty-five years, <laughs> come back uh, to France. But uh, Francis said, "Who do you know in Paris?" Of course, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. And he said, well, why don't you go and see Giacometti? And I thought, well, you know, that's mad. I can't just go and uh, barge in on somebody I've, I've never met and say, well, here I am. Yeah. You know? uh, so he said, no, I'll write you a letter. So he scrawled this letter, ripped out a couple of pages Brilliant. from Parimatch and scrawled this letter to Giacometti in green ink, I remember, over war photographs. Um, and um, so I took it to Paris with me and then I realized quite uh, quickly that I was, uh, I got a little sort of studio, little uh, little apartment in uh, the same area as Giacometti's yeah. studio where he worked and lived. And um, so I just, you know, I went down and I saw where the studio was and I knew I got the right place because he had Giacometti written in white <laughs> capital letters on the, uh, on the glass in the door. Yeah. Um, and then I got overcome by shyness, you know, and I thought, well, you know, how can I just go and knock on his door oh, and disturb yeah, him? You there. Some really important work and here's this, you know, youth that's just turned up and uh, I'm interrupting. So I had a problem with that and I kept walking round and round with it, holding this letter thinking, you know, how can I deliver it? Yeah, plucking up the courage. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, I probably had to have a few drinks and go and rap on his door. But then I was told he just that week died because he'd gone back to Switzerland, gone into a hospital. He'd been, you know, he hadn't been well for some time. Yeah. And I realised that Bacon might have known that he was uh, not in, uh, in, in good health because he'd seen quite a lot of him the previous year when he had an exhibition at the Tate in 65. But anyway, there it was. He uh, he was dead, and uh, you know there was no way I was going to meet him. But I, I was I got very fascinated by what I I what hadn't happened, as it yeah. was. Yeah. You know, if I met him, uh, we might have become friends, as I've become friends with with Bacon, and my life might have taken a completely different turn. You know, mm. I met people through him, and and perhaps we would have talked a lot, and I'd have done uh, a book about him. And um, so anyway, I started, um, I started collecting catalogues and photographs and all sorts of things about Giacometti in the studio. And I began to meet all the people around it because I had this interest. And uh, once you met one, it sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, the critics who've written about him met his widow, uh, Annette, his brother, oh, his two brothers, um, uh, Bruno and, and, and Diego. Diego was the one who worked with him. Mm. Uh, in his studio and, and made the, you know, did the patina on the, the sculpture and made the, the bases for the, uh, for the sculptures and was his sort of kind of uh, technician. 
and advisor and all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah. We were very, very close. Also his model, because he, he sat. I mean, basically he used Annette, his wife, and Diego, uh, his brother, uh, because they were always on hand. <laughs> and, and free. And anyway, so this has gone on for a long time. I've done several Giacometti uh, exhibitions and I've done several small books and uh, uh, catalogue um, catalog texts on Giacometti, but yeah. uh, I now have the, uh, the possibility rather sort of a long time, nearly 60 years after that, to write a whole book about it. So Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm sort of uh, in the middle of that. And it's fascinating and very difficult because yeah. so many good writers have written about Giacometti. And uh, I want to say something new. Otherwise, it's not worth mm. writing a book. And also bring in um, what interests me in particular in this book is to bring in uh, his world, because his world was extraordinary. You know, he came from this, this mountain village in, in Switzerland. Yeah. And when he arrived in Paris, he was right at the centre of surrealism. You know, he got yeah. there, he came, you know, barely sort of, you know, stamped the, uh, the mountain mud off his boots. <laughs> and there he was, because he was enormously gifted and talented and attractive as a person. Um, he found himself in the middle of this extraordinary you know, crazy movement that threw everything really out of the window and wanted yeah. to start over again uh, as a result, really, of the horrors of the First World War. They thought, you know, throw it all out, start mm. again, use your imagination, uh, let yourself be guided by dreams and so on. And he was caught up in all that. And if you, um, if you sort of study Giacometti, you inevitably come across all these extraordinary people that he knew and were part of his life yeah. uh, with the surrealists. And then after the war with, uh, uh, with the existentialists with people like Sartre and uh, Simone de Beauvoir and uh, Camus and, uh, and the philosophers of the, of, of the time. Mm. And his relationship with writers fascinates me uh, hugely because he had all the surrealist poets um, uh, kind of as, close friends yeah. and uh, then after the war people like Sartre and then uh, Jean Genet and Beckett who was uh, became a, uh, a a close friend um, uh, you know in a sense they're quite uh, quite close in in their in their vision of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Beckett figures these gaunt sort of um, uh, people without hope there was plenty of those at that time, wasn't there? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, uh, well, post-war Paris was an extraordinary phenomenon because, uh, after all, it had been occupied all those years and had uh, suffered, you know, had suffered sort of the humiliation and the uh, and the uh, the lack lack of freedom yeah. that uh, that having, you know, a uh, as it were, an enemy um, occupy your city. And then there was a sort of explosion afterwards, uh, and Giacometti was part of that. I mean, that's where his work really took off, uh, and he became he became from having been uh, during the war completely sort of uh, he he kept working at his sculptures until they disappeared completely. He tried to get this vision he'd had he had of the, the the love of his life at that point. He saw her from far off standing, waiting for him at the at the end of the Boulevard uh, uh, Saint-Michel. 
and um, uh, it's a, I'll try and make this a very short story. Uh, he felt all this emotion for her and uh, seeing her vulnerable like that against the, the, the dark building and the night sky mm-hmm. looking so tiny, he wanted to capture that in a sculpture. Yeah. And um, the only thing he could think of, uh, because he was a very, very intelligent man, and this occupied him (laughs) for all the war years when he was in Geneva. He went back to Switzerland uh, to look after, to be with his mother and so on. Um, uh, Was the sculptures uh, got smaller and smaller and ended up in little heaps of dust. When he came back from uh, from, uh, after the war, he had nothing to show for uh, for five years. Uh, for five years, he'd been working. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly, his his figures came together again and started becoming elongated and uh, and you know this craggy kind of survivor. It's almost the, the shape of his sculptures is almost the shadow of the person that. Yes, um, it's that true. That you're well, yeah. like walking shadows. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, oddly, from having been totally obscure and living basically from handouts from his mum, you know, uh, because he couldn't sell any, there was nothing to sell, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, and from everybody thinking, oh, poor old Alberto, you know, he's... uh, uh, he's gone mad, you know. He sort of can't uh, can't get it together. He used to be so talented, and now he's got obsessed by this uh, this one figure that he can't uh, realize. And he lived in this extraordinary hermit-like way, uh, obsessed by this one thing. And then he became famous. It was a very odd thing because he was actually perfectly happy to continue like that. Yeah. But I suppose you know uh, he was pleased that his mum was pleased because he was suddenly successful yeah. and didn't have to live off her any longer. And uh, and he had this, this extraordinary sort of range of, of friends and uh, and Paris, for me, was, it was a very fascinating thing, rising from its ashes, as it were. Definitely. And then all those marvellous people that, uh, you know, that got together in the evening, often because they got together in cafes because their, their, their apartments were stone cold and they couldn't... Yeah. They couldn't keep warm, so they went to a cafe and had a, uh, you know, had a glass of wine or something like that, and made it last. And so uh, they had these wonderful conversations, uh, and it sort of it was a rebirth. And when when do you think this this book may be coming out? Well, I hope next year if I can manage to finish finish it this year. But uh, you know, it is uh, it is a long because uh, because he was such a complex and central and important figure. I write one thing, and then I realise there are three other things yeah. to say. But yeah. I don't want to do one of those great big telephone directories. I want to keep it from that. <laughs> do what he done and just cut it away, cut it away. Yes, that's right. I want to cut it to the bone, a bit exactly. like the Japanese sculptors, you know. Yeah, I mean, but don't end up with just a pile of torn up paper at the end of it, though. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I'll certainly try uh, try to avoid that. Yes, exactly. The whittled down. <laughs> Uh, well, I want to keep it, but I want to keep it. I, I, I get very uh, annoyed with those books. You know, you start reading them, say, in bed when you're going to sleep, and they yeah. literally fall from your hands because they're, yeah. they're so heavy, you know, yeah. it's sort of 900 pages. Um, so I'm trying to keep it compact, but one is always, with Giacometti, one is always conscious of the fact that there is so much to say. I mean, you, you introduce a word like Sartre, and of course, you could write a. Exactly. Uh, 
a, a book within yeah. a book. Yeah. Um, and you have to keep it so you have to have this discipline all the time. You get in so much and you think, well, Jean-Paul Sartre, that's that's all you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're getting a, a name check. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you're in, you know, <laughs> we can't go any further. Because otherwise it takes you right off your uh, off your path, you know. Yeah. I mean, you've got to keep to the path, you know. You know what? What? what meanwhile, what is Alberta doing while we're talking about uh, exactly. about such? You know, he's he's producing new sculpture. To mention that, and you know, so it's, it's a, but it's a fascinating task. As well as the book, will there be anything physical going along with it? There might be an exhibition. I've got several uh, several notions going on. Uh, I'm I'm beginning to develop an idea. It would be nice. To have an exhibition at the same time. And would you be thinking of having it in France or the UK? I'm not at all sure. It's uh, sort of moving around at the moment and it's it's too early days to say anything. Uh, it's not that I'm superstitious but it really is. <laughs> yeah, you know and yeah. um, but uh, I think it would be wonderful to have uh, have an exhibition, perhaps more than one exhibition, going to more than one place, yeah. something like that. Yes. Brilliant. A traveling, traveling exhibition. Let's hope that can take place. So, yes, in, in summary, we've got what is ahead at Ben Brown Fine Arts in London, which is closing on the thirtieth. You can still see it online, and it's then if you happen to be passing Hong Kong, pop in and see it in Hong Kong <laughs> later on in the year. That's um, what it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Francis Bacon's Man and Beast, which I am so looking forward to. Oh, thank um, you. On in in January next year, and uh, the book. Have you got a title for uh, the Giacometti book yet? It's probably Giacometti in Paris. Perfect. Simplest possible title that uh, sums it up in a nutshell. Brilliant, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you. And uh, I could have spent uh, an hour or so speaking about each of these subjects. Well, perhaps we'll do that oh, sometime. I'd love to. Thank you, mate. All the very best. All the best. Thank you for your Bye. time. See you later. There you go, Michael Pepiat. I was properly excited to record this episode. I hope my nerves didn't show too much at the start, although they did go pretty quickly, I've got to say. As Michael mentioned there, what is ahead is on at Ben Brown's in London until the 30th of April. And if you're listening in Hong Kong, hang tight, it'll be there soon. So that's about it for this week. Thank you to KTW London for putting me and Michael together and making this episode possible. In between now and the next scheduled episode, there will be a bonus episode by Never Label about their exhibition at Art Snug, which is entitled Restore Mother Earth, part of World Earth Day which is on April the 22nd. So keep your eyes open for that one. Like I say every week, on whichever platform you listen to this podcast, you should be able to leave a comment. If you could do that, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. If you've got any queries, drop us a line on social media at ministryofarts.org. If you're enjoying these episodes, spread the word of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Thanks for listening and until next week... Ta-da.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.